0: Today's scripture is from Luke, chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the good of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil, for it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. This is the word of God for the people of God. Speak to God. Thank you, Teresa. Imagine back with me to the year 1736. Everyone who dislikes history just rolled their eyes so hard, I know. It's okay, hang on, it's a good story. 1736, and we're somewhere between the coast of England and the coast of Georgia on a ship traveling with one Mr. John Wesley from his home in Oxford to a missionary adventure in the American colonies. John was in his early 30s at the time. He is already an ordained priest in the Church of England, and he has decided that God is calling him across the ocean to convert the Native Americans. And somewhere in the middle of that voyage to North America, the ship encountered a terrible storm, the kind of storm that rocks the whole ship and tears the sail to shreds. It's the kind of storm where the passengers have legitimate reason to fear for their safety. You can think about it like turbulence that maybe you've experienced on an airplane. This is not some little rumbling where you have to hold onto your water glass to keep it from sliding down the tray and the captain makes you fasten your seatbelt uh, just out of caution. No, this is not that kind of turbulence. This is the turbulence where you're rocking to and fro, where the plane feels like it suddenly drops a foot and you catch your breath, where the flight attendants have to sit down and buckle up, where everybody stops talking and closes their eyes and grips their armrests and prays, it will soon be over. Have you ever been in turbulence like that? Well, John was stuck in that kind of storm. And he gathered with some of the English passengers to pray, One even brought him a baby to baptize in case they were all about to die. Well, not long after, during the same storm, John went to another worship service on the ship with a group of German Moravians. And a Moravian is a a kind of church, it's just a different denomination than the Church of England. And during that worship service, a huge wave engulfed the ship and poured water down into the cabins. The English passengers screamed in fear and the Moravians, they kept right on singing. John Wesley was amazed. And he later wrote in his journal, this is the most glorious day I have yet seen. Later, John asked one of the Moravians if they'd been afraid. And the men said, no, none of them had been afraid because none of them were afraid to die. And that impressed John, but it also troubled him, because it appeared to him that they had something he did not have. They had an absolute trust in God that meant that they were ready for this earthly life to end, knowing that God held them secure. And John took his own fear at the storm as a sign that his faith was not as solid as he thought. Did he trust in God? If so, why was he so scared? Well, John and the whole ship, they made it safely to the colonies where he spent a miserable two years in Georgia. He did not convert a single Native American and he got in trouble with the English settlers so severely that he had to hop on a ship under the cover of night and escape back to England. The voyage home was again stormy. And John again experienced this sense of fear that had him questioning the firmness of his faith. Luckily for him, when he returned home, he was able to connect with a group of Moravians and spend some time worshiping with them and learning from them. And not long after, on a particular night at a meeting at Aldersgate Street, he was overcome by the Holy Spirit with a sense, a new sense for him of reassurance a sense that he said his heart was strangely warmed that night, and the kind of faith that he had long sought was finally his. He wrote that in that moment, he felt that he did finally and fully trust in Christ for his salvation. And this moment of reassurance, it was a big boost to his faith and to his work as he went on to found the movement that we call Methodists, Us. The change in his heart, it it produced some pretty amazing fruit in his life. Now, I would guess that John Wesley would say that after he had that moment of confirmation and reassurance, after his heart was strangely warmed, that he lived the good life much more closely to the way Jesus describes it in the Gospel of Luke. We're in week four here of our close examination of Jesus' central teaching, the Sermon on the Plain. Remember, this is Jesus telling us what it looks like to be a disciple, what it looks like to be close to the kingdom of God. Do you want to live a life of faithfulness, a life that overflows with abundance and joy, the kind that God has promised us? Then trust in God and do these things, Jesus says. Things like love your enemies, give to everyone who asks from you, be compassionate, be merciful. Last week, we heard Jesus say, Don't judge, and take the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck that's there in your neighbor's eye. And that teaching about judgment is especially important for us to remember because what Jesus says next can sound like an invitation to actually judge other people. But Jesus just got done saying, Don't judge, don't condemn. The measure you give will be the measure you get. Worry about your own faults and shortcomings, hypocrite, before you go pointing out the trouble in your neighbor's life. So it's with that teaching in mind that we hear Jesus talk about trees and fruit. Again, this week, the teaching is very straightforward. And unlike in some other places in this sermon, Jesus is not actually asking us to look at the world in an upside down way. Instead, he's pointing out something very, very obvious using a metaphor that we can all understand, right? And why does he do that? To invite us to self-reflection. Worry about the log in your own eye, he says, and then he offers us a way to do that. If we're convicted by what he said that we need to work on our own stuff, he asks us to consider a tree and his fruit. You heard what he said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. It's incredibly obvious. Penny helped us remember that. Even if you can't identify a tree by its leaves or its bark, which I have a hard time doing that, you are wise enough, I am wise enough to tell an apple tree has a bunch of apples on it. A peach tree is growing peaches. A cherry tree is that one with all the cherries hanging off of it. Jesus goes on to say, in terms of bearing fruit, there's no use trying to fake it. A thorn bush cannot proclaim, tomorrow I will grow figs. <laughs> no one's going to go to the thorn bush looking for figs, no matter what the thorn bush says. Neither can you get grapes from a bramble bush. And likewise with us, the fruit we produce comes from who we are, inside, no faking it. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, he says. The evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. It's a short teaching he gives us here, but he's pretty serious about it, because this is not the only time in the Gospel of Luke that we read about fruit and trees. John the Baptist actually uses the very same imagery as he goes around preaching before Jesus' public ministry. Luke chapter 3, verse 9 says, John said to the crowd, you brood of vipers. I just want to say, I really want to start a sermon like that sometime. I love John the Baptist. Let's get up here and say, you brood of vipers. No. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones, children for Abraham. Even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Later on in the gospel, Jesus tells a parable of a fig tree about wanting to find good fruit on that tree. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? And the gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Another time, Jesus told a parable about seeds falling on different kinds of soil, which is different than trees, but the point is the same. Luke chapter 8 verse 15 says, But for, as for that in the good soil, these are the ones who, when they hear the word of God, They hold fast to it in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patient endurance. So all this talk about fruit, it's a reminder to us that our faith is not just about what we believe. It's about how those beliefs manifest in our lives. What good does it do us to believe all righteous things if they don't somehow translate into real life? In fact, I think Jesus is implying with all this talk of fruit that if we don't see evidence of faith in someone's speech or someone's action, we have a right to consider what's actually in their heart. Or rather, because we're focusing on ourselves. If we can't point to evidence in our own lives that our faith has made a difference in how we live and talk and act, and spend our money, and spend our time, and make friends and help others, if we don't have evidence that our faith has impacted those things, then we need to take a moment to question our own hearts and ask, what is going on inside of me? As we remember Jesus' caution about judging others, I hear this scripture as a clear invitation to consider ourselves, to do a self-check. What kind of fruit am I bearing in the world? And there are lots of ways we could ask this question, but a helpful one might be what kind of things would the people around me say if I asked them about the fruit in my life? If I asked them and they were in a place to be honest with me, not just nice to me, what would they say? What kind of fruit do they see from me? I'm taking part right now in a continuing education program with a bunch of other mid-career clergy from nearby annual conferences. Most of them are from Texas, actually, but I try not to hold that against them. I love Texans. I went to college in Texas, so I know how easy it is to make fun of them. And as a part of the program, we were all asked in a couple months ago to fill out a 360 degree evaluation. Has anybody ever done a 360 evaluation? Well, it is a really good process and also a really awful process. In a 360 degree evaluation, you select people to rate you anonymously on a whole long list of leadership characteristics and behaviors. Your boss does it, your coworkers do it, and the people who report to you do it. That's what makes it 360 degrees. It's people who experience your leadership in all kinds of different ways. And I had a bunch of people fill mine out. I had the district superintendent do it. I had lots of our staff here at St. Paul's do it. A bunch of my colleagues in the Great Plains filled it out for me and a good number of lay leaders here in the congregation also. And I also had to rate myself in all these categories. And then a few weeks ago, I got back a report that compiled all the data from all the raters And it showed me all the places where there's a gap between what I intend to do as a leader and what I'm actually accomplishing from the perspective of others. Now, to be fair, it showed me a lot of things that I'm doing well, and that was great. It was, to see what people notice as my strengths, to have folks name some of the good fruit that I am bearing, and I am grateful for that. But of course, the harder part but also the more helpful part is to see the places where I want to be bearing fruit, or maybe even have convinced myself that I am, but the people around me are saying, you're not quite doing it, Amy, or at least not to the extent you want to. Now, I will say there was nothing in that report that was shocking. I mean, I have known myself for a while now, and I have a sense of my shortcomings enough to know that my Raiders actually described me pretty accurately. But something about having it in print there in front of you, from the people who interact with me each and every day, that makes it really helpful. It makes it plain to me. And it helps me to know where I need to focus as I try to grow my leadership in the months and the years to come. But what about you? If the people around you had to describe the fruit that you are bearing, if they had to name the kind of tree that you are right now in this season, what would they say? Never mind for a moment what you intend to be or what you're trying to be. What do they actually see and experience from you? Are you an angry tree bearing the fruit of rage? Are you a tree of joy bearing the fruit of delight? Are you a tree who can never be satisfied, bearing the fruit of disappointment? Are you a tree of hope, bearing the fruit of encouragement? Are you a stressed out tree that can never relax, bearing the fruit of anxiety and tension? Are you a tree of hurry, bearing fruit of neglect and rush? Are you a tree of compassion, bearing fruit of patience? Are you a drama-seeking tree bearing the fruit of gossip? What kind of tree are you in this season? What's the fruit that those around you see? You know, the the season of Lent has long been understood as a time of self-reflection and examination. It's a time to look honestly at ourselves and ask for God's help to get back on course where we have strayed from the path of discipleship. It's a time to recommit ourselves to the practices of faith if we have let them fall away. It's a time to listen close to the words of Jesus when we have let his voice become faint. Now, none of this is about earning our salvation. Remember, God... God does not require us to do a certain number of good works in order to earn God's love or make our way to eternal life. God's grace is a free gift. It's given out of God's pure love. But if we find ourselves consistently bearing bad fruit, if we find ourselves far off from the fruit of the gospel, we need to stop and ask, have I really received the love and grace of God? Have I really understood God's gift of salvation? Have I really let the Holy Spirit work in my heart? And have I taken God's promises as real? I'm not talking about us reaching perfection, but just being able to see some good fruit in our lives. If we know the saving love of God, it will be shown somewhere in what we do or what we say, how we act, how we live.